you got Problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah You don't know how you're supposed to earn it Or what to do with it Or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears With a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's back with money with Gabby Dunn Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn And this is Bad With Money This episode's theme is buying a healthy mind. Is it possible to buy your mental health or buy better mental health? Well, you've come to the right place. Uh, So if this is your first time listening, hi. Um, But if you've been here for a while, you know that I have bipolar disorder and I am on several medications for that, including Lamictal and Sertraline. And I do take also Clonopin. Um, so, uh, as needed, which is often, um, I also go in and I see a psychiatrist. I go to therapy and then I see a psychiatrist. And I've been thinking about all of this because during coronavirus, I suddenly don't need to go in and see the psychiatrist anymore. I actually am able to just, um, get her through email to send the prescription to my pharmacist. As someone with a mental illness, it has benefited me at times to be face-to-face with my psychiatrist because she can see if I'm lying, if, I'm, if I've got a different demeanor, if like I think that the search line is working, but she sees that it's not working. Um, and so it has really, at times, for me, I mean, most recently, like April a year ago where I was suicidal... It has benefited her to be with me in person, but I'm also saving a ton of money and time by not having to go see her in person. So this week, we are talking to Dr. Imani Walker, who is a psychiatrist and um, someone who works primarily with underprivileged and poverty level patients, mostly like the homeless or people that have committed crimes. And... We wanted to have her on because I wanted to talk about what's going on with mental health now during COVID, right? We're in a tragedy. We're in the middle of a crisis. And a lot of people are experiencing either depression or anxiety for the first time. It's coming out and they're not used to it and they don't know what this is. They don't know how to handle it or how to feel. And and also people with existing mental illnesses who are being flung into crisis. So I wanted to talk to Dr. Imani because I wanted to find out what social safety nets are available right now, what class, race, and economic status has to do with your ability to access uh, mental health care right now, what the future of therapy is going to look like. Are we going to be sitting six feet away from our therapist with masks over our faces? How are we supposed to establish rapport that way or trust? Um, And also, like, is it possible to purchase perfect mental health? So let's talk to Dr. Imani Walker. Um, I was super excited to do this interview because I love anytime I get to talk to a mental health professional for free. Okay, so can you um, can you <laughs> can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Dr. Imani Walker, and I am a psychiatrist um, out here in Los Angeles. I am chief medical officer of Gateways Hospital and Mental Health Center here in LA, and I also am Dr. Imani on Married to Medicine Los Angeles, which is now on Bravo TV. So what, what exactly do you do at Gateway? 
So at Gateways Hospital, um, I have kind of two roles. So one, I would say like 50% of it is administrative. So I'm chief medical officer. Everybody who is a nurse or a doctor, whether they're a psychiatrist or an internist, like I'm kind of like their queen. So I have to, you know, basically, you know, deal with kind of boring administrative stuff, but I like it. Um, The other thing that I do with Gateways Hospital is I am a clinician. So I'm a psychiatrist. I was trained in general adult psychiatry. And then after my residency program, when I graduated that program, I went and did a forensic psychiatry program, which essentially is where forensic psychiatry is where the law and psychiatry meet. So one of the things that really attracted me to psychiatry is that there, like there are some medical specialties where the law does become involved, but with psychiatry, it's, it's, the law is, is really kind of heavily involved to the point where out here in LA, people, some people will joke about it, but they'll say like, oh, that person's, that person um, is 5150. Because 5150, according to the California Penal Code, is actually what describes the criteria for someone who can be placed on a 72-hour psychiatric hold. Mm -hmm. And those criteria have to be met in order for that person to basically lose their, you know, some rights Mm -hmm. while they're being evaluated by a psychiatrist. And a psychiatrist has three days or 72 hours to do that. So again, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. So I deal with mostly patients who either came from the state mental hospital Mm -hmm. because they may have committed a crime and they were found to not be um, incompetent. They were found to be um, incompetent to stand trial against right, the yeah. crimes that they did because their crime basically was caused by their mental health um, diagnosis or their illness or their symptoms. So I see I see a lot of those patients. Um, I would say probably seventy five percent of the people that I see um, have forensic and criminal histories. So that's what I do. So what are the basic mental health resources that everyone should have access to? The resources that people in the city have access to is vastly different than what people in like rural settings have, right? So mm-hmm. when you take all of the United States, and that includes, you know, the you know what people sometimes call the flyover states or the square right. states, when you take everything as a whole, sixty percent of U.S. counties don't have any mental health clinicians in them. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a city. It's still sometimes hard because maybe you just don't know like where to go because it's not something like, oh, you got an emergency, dial 911. You got to deal with like, you know, issues with your trash, dial 311. There isn't a, you know, I'm making this up, a 511 to call if there's like a mental health emergency. So for us in the cities, we can actually Google something. and And since we're in LA... I, something from the Department of Mental Health, which is a county agency, will come up. Mm-hmm. But if in your like, I don't know, Brunswick, right. Georgia, you may not have the same access to mental health services. And mm-hmm. sometimes, unfortunately, which is something that's kind of giving me pause right now in the age of COVID, if you live in a rural a rural community and you need to see a mental health practitioner, it, it, that person might be three hours away. Right. I mean, thank God for telemedicine, but sometimes 
it's sometimes you really do need to evaluate somebody face to face. Sometimes people really do want to have that connection. Again, I know it's COVID, so everyone's mm-hmm. doing a lot of telemedicine and telehealth. But you know, in previous times, in quote unquote normal days, mm-hmm. yeah, it was a lot of people would go without mental health treatment because it just it the, their community didn't have it. Yeah, I mean, there's also like. There's just like no um, knowledge that that is an option for you. Mm-hmm. So I think like, I mean, what's the answer? Is it like pre- creating more statewide ability to help people? Is it more education to be like, look, you're not giving yourself a scarlet letter if you have depression. I think like, you know, you were talking about on this other podcast I listened to you on about specifically like black people not wanting to go to to therapy. And I even like, I'm white, but like when I was going to go get diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I I didn't want it. Because I was like, if you write down bipolar on a piece of paper, that's going to follow me. me. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I hear that. I hear that a lot from my patients too. Like, especially the one, I mean, in all fairness, when I see a patient, they've never met me. I've never met them. I literally have 30 minutes to ask them a bunch of questions and get them to trust me well enough so that if I do have prescribed medication, which is typically what I'm doing the majority of the time, a lot of times they'll be like, well, don't write that down. I'm like, well, first of all, I, I have to write it down. Mm-hmm. But I also explain like, this is, you know, this document that I'm typing on is your protected health information. It is a crime. It's a, it's a felony for me to disseminate that information without your express written, written consent. Right. So, but people, but I mean, again, people like, yeah, but like you're going to put it down and my insurance is going to know and X, Y, and Z and this, that, and the third. And so, yeah, we have a lot to do regarding breaking the stigma, but I will say as someone like I'm generation X, right? I'm like mid forties. I, I'm really happy to see that, you know, millennials, let's say, you know, let's say 15, 20 years younger than me, that Therapy is just like, oh yeah, I'm a therapy, whatever, who cares? Whereas yeah. when people like in my generation are like, well, I mean, like I have a doctor, but like, I, you know, <laughs> it's like it's, it's still like this really like, like, sh- like clan, like it's a secret. But I think, you know, much like the saying, like, the, you know, like the kids are going to be all right. Like, mm-hmm. like the children have to lead the way. Mm-hmm. That's really kind of what I've been seeing as far as like, people who are millennials are very much like, oh yeah, I got a therapist and so what? Like, I don't like, I don't care. Like, this is what I need for myself. I mean, it depends. I had an ex-girlfriend from Kentucky and it was like, you could not, like therapy was like for people who were fucked up. Like you could Mm -hmm. not. uh, And I was like, no, like I go to therapy. So what? So what are you saying? Right. But like, I think there's also people that they find it very cost prohibitive should all of this stuff be free? Like, is there a way in which like all of this kind of stuff could be free for people? Um, you know, it, it could be. So where I work, we don't accept patients with insurance. Okay. So the patients that we see are typically, you know, definitely below a, a certain socioeconomic level. A lot of them are homeless. We help them. Um, apply for insurance, apply for like Medi-Cal, Medicare. Um, But we don't accept people with insurance. So we actually are contracted by the city, by the Department of Mental Health to provide services. So they give us money and then we provide the services. So those type of services are out there. Honestly, you just have to like do a Google search. 
for those people who maybe, you know, don't have the, maybe it's time prohibitive because to go get an intake at like a county clinic really can be an all day situation. You have to like fill out paperwork and go to one building, go to another one, blah, blah, blah. But there do exist, if you Google it right now, there exist therapists that you can see online that offer um, sliding scale therapy, which basically means that based upon your economic level, they will adjust the the rates, Mm -hmm. the prices for the visit if you don't have insurance. Yeah. So that that's definitely a thing. And you know, again, if you don't live in a major metropolitan city, you can still see someone via telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, telehealth has been a godsend when it comes to, especially times like these, when I'm seeing a lot of patients, like patients that were previously stable, like just, it's been eight weeks in LA. And a lot of the people that I deal with, you know, have a history of becoming psychotic, here having hallucinations, becoming paranoid. And there's nothing more paranoia inducing than watching yep. the news right now. Yep. So I tell them, I'm like, listen, I'm like, I don't even, I don't, I haven't watched like TV news since March. I read mm-hmm. for 15 minutes a day yeah. of the news. And then after that, I'm like, that's it. Like I'm done. Cause everything yep. else is just turns into this rabbit hole of misery, unfortunately, because that's, you know, I mean, we're just kind of in a miserable, miserable place globally. Going into, I feel like friends of mine who have gone into inpatient have been really scared Mm. by the whole experience. And I know I've avoided inpatient for that reason too, a lot of times. Mm. You don't know what to expect. Right. I mean, and honestly, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'm, I do, I do inpatient. Um, no, actually not right now, but that I, I kind of, I do like a, I'm like a psychiatric hodgepodge. Like I'll see forensic cases. I'll see, you know, geriatric cases, sometimes adolescent cases, but you know, I can kind of explain in, you know, briefly what going into an inpatient facility is like. It, it, it can, it definitely can be scary and it can be a bit jarring because like you said, you don't know what to expect. When you go to an inpatient facility, one of the first things they do is they'll like they'll have you, you know, if if you are if you really need to take a shower, like they're going to take care of that, they're going to wash your clothes. They're going to do what's called an intake and just ask you, you know, why why are you here? What's been going on? They'll go through a thorough history. Anyone in your family got this? You have any, you know, issues with drugs or alcohol? Not because we're nosy and we want to judge you, but just because we need to know as much as we can to make sure that while, you know, you're there, you're comfortable. You will probably have to share a room with someone. You may have to share a room with someone that, you know, might be less stable or more more, you know, unstable than you. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the main thing is that, you know, going into an inpatient facility is not a scarlet letter Mm -hmm. because basically to go to an inpatient facility, you have to be evaluated by a psychiatrist first. And then that person has to make the decision as to whether you need more treatment beyond, let's say if you were on a 5150 beyond a 72 hour hold. Mm-hmm. So, and it can be, it can be jarring because the doors on, on inpatient facilities, psychiatric facilities are locked. Right. And it's not because it's jail. It's not because we're like, okay, haha, now you can't leave. But sometimes we encounter patients where we actually have to protect them from someone on the outside. 
what it is is that sometimes we've had you know visitors who may have been like somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend mm-hmm. or whomever and they get to the unit and then we find out this person is an unmedicated you know like bipolar person who's psychotic and it's like oh my god like we you yeah know, so so there are certain things in place even architecturally speaking mm-hmm. um inpatient units are set up a certain way so that the clinicians can pretty much always see what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it, it can, I mean, it can be about as scary as like, Oh God, I have to have like emergency surgery. Now I'm getting admitted to like the medical unit of a hospital. Like if you had like an appendix burst or something. Exactly. Like, it's like, Oh, I don't want to do that. But Mm -hmm. I always tell people, you know, you're here for a reason. And it's my job to get you as stable as possible, as quickly as possible. Cause we don't want you in there yeah. longer. Cause once you're better, we're like, okay, fine. Thank you. Like it was so nice meeting you. We need the next person in here. Yeah. Like we're really trying to get everybody out, but it just so happens that, you know, for some people, they just need a little bit longer care. All right. We're going to pause this chat and go on a short break and we'll be right back. And we're back. During COVID, who is there uh, unequal access to mental health based on class and race? How is that worsening during all of this? And how and how are people more how are people getting more um, symptoms or more affected by their their mental health? So during this time, and honestly, I would say this is what I'll say in the beginning of COVID, mm-hmm. beginning of the stay at home, you know orders. We, we, and when I say we, I mean like the mental health uh, clinician community, we were scrambling trying to figure out like, oh shit, like, do we stop admissions? Like, like I've never dealt with this before. Like, what do we do? Like now we're dealing with not just somebody that we're not dealing with like, you know, typical severe mental illness where somebody might, you know, Mm -hmm. be um, very agitated or upset. Now we're dealing with like, we are, we don't know if you are like, safe because of things we can't see. And in psychiatry, we're used to, I mean, these patients have symptoms that I can't quantify. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, there's no scale for like, how manic are you today? Mm -hmm. You know, but we just know because we know what the behaviors are. But definitely during COVID or when the beginning, when COVID really gained a foothold in the U.S., um, I was I was really concerned, especially because I know that for for the hospital that I work at and, and for lots of hospitals who deal with adolescents, who deal with adults as well, there's definitely an uptick in um, domestic violence um, mm-hmm. episodes, domestic violence calls. And because we get a lot of our referrals from schools, you know, uh, we don't have as many kids on our adolescent unit because the schools were the referral source. It doesn't right. mean that those kids can't get help, but it's the, harder. It's harder because they're not going to school and a guidance counselor or a teacher, you know, who is outside of their family isn't laying eyes on them. Right. Right. So it has been harder, but now that you know, DMH is like, okay, we need for y'all to open things back up. We need for, we need to figure out a game plan because we got to get people the help that they need. Mm -hmm. I would say now, I would say over the past like three weeks, it is easier to get help because we can't just, 
you know, put like a stopcock and everything because, you know, we're, because we're all afraid. Like, it's like, well, you know, we're essential workers too. We got to make sure that these people who are very ill with symptoms we can't see Mm -hmm. are still able to get the help. Like, did you feel, I mean, because it is like a, a facility like that is similar and a jail is similar to like a Petri dish for this kind of thing. I mean, did you feel like in that panic in the beginning, were you like, I need to still see patients or were you like, I, I have to see them in person and um, and like now to open stuff up, like, is it safe for, you know, patients, but also for for professionals? Um, in the very beginning, I would go and see patients face to face. Um, and I would, you know, wear a mask and yeah. stuff. But due to the nature of the patients that I treat, there came a point about, I want to say it was like maybe six weeks ago, four to six weeks ago, where one of the facilities that I work in, there were two patients who kept leaving and coming back, leaving, coming back, leaving, coming back. Right. And I was like, okay, here's the thing. Like, I, I'm like, I want to treat you guys and I, and I trust myself the best when it comes to medication, but I'm like, I can't, like, if I get sick, that's Mm -hmm. like 300 plus people that are not going to be able to receive the type of care that they have. So luckily in my field, I'm able to conduct visits via like telehealth or telepsychiatry. Mm -hmm. So either video conferencing or on the phone. Is the future of therapy now, like when we get back to quote Whatever unquote, it is. Normal, is it going to therapy and sitting six feet from your therapist with you both having masks on? Is that the future of therapy? You know what? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I know that right now the, um, the, pub- the Department of Public Health in, in Los Angeles told us at the, like, at the hospital that if you're meeting with a patient and you're, and you're in, in an office then you both have to wear masks. Like basically, like if I if I go into a facility, I have to have a mask on all the time. Mm-hmm. But with psychiatry, that can be hard sometimes because you know people connect to me through my face, what I'm right. able to emote. Mm-hmm. So it's been kind of hard to adjust to that, which also is why, you know, I was like, I'm just gonna stay home and see patients on video or on the phone because I need for them to be able, like I need to see them and they need to see me. Yeah, that's so, what worries me about in-person therapy with masks on is it's such a interpersonal thing. It yeah. was so hard to to feel like you could be truthful or feel trust, you know, establish Trustwork, trust where you yeah, can't yeah. see someone's nose and mouth. Weirdly. Yeah. So if you're someone who is staying at home now all the time, you might have more exacerbated symptoms of like depression. Probably everyone has more exacerbated symptoms of anxiety. And then if you're like an essential worker, which largely essential workers we've talked about on this show are people of color in the sense that like they work in nursing homes or they're nurses or um, working in grocery stores or things like that. Like, is there, I'm worried, like, is there a, is there going to be like a sweeping PTSD kind of that everyone will have at different levels? I'm nodding like furiously, (laughs) but yes. I'll bet money on it. And I only, and I'm not joking. Like I'm really honest about that because when I was, I was still a doctor, but I was a baby doctor. I was a resident. And when Katrina happened in New Orleans, a lot of people from New Orleans came to LA. Mm -hmm. And so for a good six months, I would see these people who either had prior mental 
health issues in New Orleans, or they got mental health issues because of what they saw during Katrina and the aftermath of Katrina. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it was, I mean, I would say like, Every other shift I had, you know, in the in the psyche yard, like that's what I would see. And we were just dealing with like a subset of people who left New Orleans and came to LA. Now, now we're dealing with nations. We're mm-hmm. dealing with, I mean, like I would love to say that, you know what, in a year, yeah, we're gonna like we're gonna be going to concerts, it's gonna be fine. I don't wanna stand less than six feet away from somebody at like like right. the the world that we are used to is it's over. Like, yeah. it's, and it doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. It doesn't because there have been a lot of, I want to say like, just take home messages that I think this pandemic exposed. Like, for example, we have a homeless problem in LA, like most major cities. Oh, so all of a sudden y'all just came up with, with motel vouchers and RVs for these homeless people to live in? I know. It's oh, sort of infuriating. How novel. Right. And I'm I like, think, really? I also think once everybody is dealing with the, the aftershocks mental health-wise of something like this, there will be maybe more free access to mental health um, services because I can't imagine that like the average person who maybe is like, well, I, I'm fine is like going to be like, I'm not fine. Like more and more people are mm-hmm. openly being like, I'm not fine. So hopefully oh, yeah. maybe one Absolutely. of the things that comes out of it is like better s- social safety nets in terms of like more free access to, um, mental health services. And even like, I've seen an increase. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've seen an increase in ads for, uh, text therapy because it's like, and all the ads start with like, in this trying time, you may want to speak to someone. And it's right. like, okay, so now it's kind of like the people that would have been opposed to it are suddenly like, you know what? It is trying. I would like to yeah. speak to someone. Right. And that and you stuff know is like cheaper. Yeah. And you know what's unfortunate is, you know, a lot of this, I think, is coming about because those who have or the haves are now the ones who are like, oh, shit. Right. Like, like, am I depressed? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, and, and that's what I mean. It's like, oh, okay. So it took uh, like a crisis of global proportions for us to figure out the homeless population in LA. Like the oh, because crisis. people, this is the thing. People are like, if I have money, I can, I can subvert. I don't have mental illness. I have money. I don't have any problems. Right. And then, or if I have problems, glass of wine with some friends, I don't have any problems. But if, it, it once it starts affecting, truly, once it starts affecting white people or upper class people, all of a sudden, like we have all the, we need all these things. We are worried, and even like the the selfishness of, oh my God, we're worried about the homeless population. We have to get them off the streets. Why? Because they're humans. No, they might give us coronavirus. Like, right? You they're know, vectors. Like, right. All of a sudden, we mm. should. We need to solve this. Okay, it's time to take one last break, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. Like, what is the disruption of routine or, like, the, disrupt- the disruption of distractions? Is that something that, like, what, what happens to you when, because as someone with bipolar dis- uh, disorder, routine was king. Right. What happens to people when they don't have their routine or they don't have distractions? 
Well, so many people complain about like, oh, I'm tired of work. I don't want to work no more. Work is stupid. Jobs are dumb. Mm-hmm. People now are like, I mean, like on the real, like I kind of would want to go to work because I have a schedule at work. Yeah. Like your mind is tailored to be like, oh, it's eight o'clock. We're going to leave the house. Okay. Mm-hmm. 830. I'm sitting in traffic. I don't like traffic, but we're programmed as human beings to look forward to certain things occurring in our day. Not right. looking forward to like, oh, and then at 12 o'clock, we're going to have a pizza party. No, it's like, I know at 12, I'm get an hour lunch break. At one o'clock, I come back. At mm-hmm. five o'clock, I leave. And so without that structure, people get very anxious because yeah the news that we're being told changes hour to hour. And so without that stability, people get anxious, people get depressed. Sometimes people get depressed and then they start to guilt guilt trip themselves like, well, I have all this time. I should have finished that quilt by now. And it's Amy, like, just no. get up in the morning. The ability right. to exist is, is draining. Right. You're right. It's exactly. exhausting. Yeah. No, it's, it's hard. And I have to be that beacon of light for my patients and my family. So, you know, as somebody who, you know, is thankfully now on Prozac for the past three months, I mean, thank God Mm -hmm. for that medication because Mm -hmm. would I be functioning? Sure. Would I be, you know, inside a a tangle of nerves and an anxious wreck? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also think like uh, with anxiety, it's hard because you you rely on knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I kind of always say this, even though I have anxiety, I've said this to people where I'm like, you're never going to know. You would never know. In January, would you have predicted this? No. No. That's hard for me because I'm like, I don't know how you keep, like if you're, if you're, what's your advice to someone who's just like, every day is different. I don't know what's happening. My advice, um, which is what I've said to the majority of my patients is, all right, make a schedule. Okay. Like I, like I'm a, I'm a dork. Like I love spreadsheets. Like I like, I'm like, okay, Tuesday is taco Tuesday. And then Wednesday is game night and Thursday, you know? So like I had to kind of make it, you know, fun for me in a way, but I know that also like I was not depressed when I made all these schedules, you know? So the, but the one thing I will say is like, you know, legit keep a schedule. Cause if you don't, you're just going to be like, oh my God. And look, here's the other- I don't know what day it is. <laughs> right. But here's the thing about making a schedule. It's your schedule. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to you know, rely upon your company or your job telling you what your schedule is. Mm-hmm. So I like the fact that, and I've been encouraging my patients to think about it like that. Like this is your time, yo. Like you can plan whatever you want to do. If you want to like go take a walk or take a bubble bath for an hour between 11 and 12, go do that. Yeah. Like it's your time. Like, like this is really like, for me at least, the silver lining in all of this is that we can emerge from this tra- like tragic time in, in like human history with skills to how we want our lives to be. Yeah. You know? And I mean, that's, and I mean, not with everyone I understand, but like, we're not like, if we're not going to be able to like go back to work and like use the break room. Yeah. Like yeah. you're not. A lot of places are not going to uh, have, have standing offices anymore. I've heard. Right. But like you're, you're allowed to work from home now uh, for forever if you want. Right. Exactly. Which should have been the case. Case anyway. Anyway. Right. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I even got anxiety the other day because I was like, oh my God, like, 
because they're like, oh, states are reopening. But I think like, I know in all honesty, I think we're going to have waves of stay at home because people just get too hype and then they want to cough and touch each other and get sick. But, (laughs) but, you know, but this is really the time I feel like when we can say collectively as like, you know, uh, people like, yo, I don't want to go to work. Like I don't, I will do work, but I don't want to deal with. I don't want to drive three hours to work. Right. For what? Yeah. And like your, you stuff you could be doing on your, or, oh, this job is, uh, you need an able-bodied person to do it. And it's like, no, did no, you, you don't put this person have worked from home this entire time. It's like things like that, that are exactly shown on them. So, so every, every episode we kind of say whether or not you can buy the specific thing we're talking about. So do you think you can buy better mental health? Um, I want to try to give a definitive answer and not be like, Maybe. I mean, here's what I would say. It depends on the type of illness you may have, right? Some mental illnesses are more severe than others. I mean, some people, you know, have schizophrenia, but they take medication and they can go to work and it's fine and nobody knows, nobody cares. For some people, you know, their symptoms are just so severe and no matter how much medication that I try to put them on or tweak it, they are not going to be able to be a quote unquote, functional member of society. Yeah. So, and that, and that tends to exist, you know, regardless of economic strata, right? Mm -hmm. So I would say that for someone who is dealing with more milder symptoms of a mental illness, I think that, yeah, you could go buy happiness, let's say, much in the same way that people who are celebrities or are politicians can be tested for COVID every day if they wanted to, right? But then there are people who, for you know, mental illness can sometimes be the great equalizer. And I've met people that were very wealthy and they were very, very ill. And it didn't matter how much money they had. That's just that's honestly, unfortunately, that's just, that's just what they got in life. But yeah, I think that with most things, unfortunately, you can, you can buy your way into, you know, having more visits maybe with a clinician, even though it's up to the clinician, really. Stable housing, medication. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you, and if you don't have the types of funds that would enable you to, you know, buy your way into happiness, it can still be done, but it's going to take a lot of work. Like you have to really like know the agencies and, mm-hmm. but, um, but I mean, luckily when it, I mean, for, for me, luckily the agencies that I've always worked with who pretty much have always served the underserved, mm-hmm. we try to go above and beyond what that person needs because we know how difficult they have it. And so we'll be like, this is like, here's a piece of paper. This is what you're going to do. Right. And sometimes I have to write it out. Like at 12, you're going to do this. At three, you're going to do this so that they have it. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, I think in most cases, sure. But in some cases, if the, if the mental illness is severe, like it, it doesn't matter. Like so, mental, mental illness, like I said, is a great equalizer, unfortunately. Um, thank you so much. I think that's everything. Thank you. Nice to meet you. You too. We are in a rabbit hole of misery right now. We can't go out. We can't distract ourselves. Watching the news makes it worse. There's only so many seasons of Drag Race. And everyone's world has been upended. A lot of the things that I use to cope, like going out, seeing friends, 
are no longer available to me. Um, I've never thought that I would be so nostalgic for a very unsatisfying evening at a gay bar. I know this conversation seems a little all over the place, but I was just really excited to talk to Dr. Imani. Um, and I thought a lot of what she said was so important for you guys to hear. I know it wasn't like so linearly money-based, but I think the fear of getting help is a huge part of why we don't go to therapy or why we don't seek mental health care. And, you know, if you're struggling right now, if you're someone who is a victim of domestic violence, you're not alone. This is a thing that's going on for a lot of people. Um, what does the future of mental health look like? Is it losing something to do telemedicine? How do you make the most out of seeing patients on a screen or talking to a therapist over the phone? And yes, you can buy better mental health. I agree with Dr. Armani's point that even the richest of people, if they have a severe enough problem, can't throw money at it. But I think the ability to afford your medications, the time and access to professionals, and and as we talked about over and over again, and which is becoming a bigger and bigger problem because of coronavirus, and because the government won't cancel rent or because cities won't help with mortgage relief, the homeless. Being homeless exacerbates your mental illness. If you have a stable home, data and statistics have shown that it is so much better for your mental health than if you don't have a home. A home contributes to stability in so many more ways than you would ever think. And there's been a lot of uh, reporting and, and research done on this. So can you buy better mental health? Yes, I think so. Thank you for listening. If you found something meaningful in this interview, then please share the episode with someone you care about. It's important to have open and honest conversations about mental health, especially right now. You are not alone. Things are unprecedented. If you think you should feel a certain way or you're worried that you aren't doing things right, I got news for you. There's no precedent for this. We have no idea what's right. Get up every day, and if you make it to the evening, you're a winner, baby. Make sure you're subscribed to our show on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns, and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and... Let's hope I'll see you next week.